The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I've been really enjoying reflecting on the path in a way in the early Buddhist tradition. You know, we don't have a, a lot of ornate sort of ritual and um, devotional objects <clears throat> as you might find in other traditions, especially here in the West, the early Buddhist tradition, Theravada Buddhism or insight meditation, Vipassana meditation. Yeah, really the devotional object ultimately is this devotion to a balanced, wise and kind presence. Now, we do depict that like, you know, when you see a statue of a Buddha or other sort of statues or artistic renditions of somebody sitting, that's what that artist is trying to convey, that way of being relaxed and alert, open-hearted, generous presence. Because what we find as we reflect on the path we reflect on this human common sense path, we discover that the essential ingredient of a wise and kind way of being a human being is this valuing of present moment awareness, this balanced, kind, clear, non-superficial, non-judgmental presence that to some degree, goes in the direction of non-contention, not being pushed around, or you could say not in conflict with what's being felt and seen and experienced. doesn't mean what we're seeing and experiencing is wholesome or pleasant. It just means the heart, the mind isn't adding on some conflict, con some conflict or some contention some reactivity. It's responding appropriately, but it's values not losing balance in the midst of navigating, doing what needs to be done, relaxing when there isn't anything to be done. It's not losing its balance because it values that balance, that clarity that comes from balance to walk, to walk the path, to live our lives. And the more we sort of acknowledge that there is a path, then, you know, a lot of wholesome qualities like gratitude just start showing up in our life more and more. And we feel less um, like doomed by our own personalities and our external circumstances that we find ourselves in at times when things are really rough or some habit of our personality is getting triggered and there it is and we wish we weren't that way but there it is we are that way we are acting or inclined to act that way and uh, this confidence in the path reminds us that there's always something we can do we can practice and I know even that phrase to practice we can practice can push our buttons because it you know, it gets interpreted as 
I have to do something, I have to fix something, and it can be, you know, just another way to act out greed, hatred, and delusion. But it's really the practice that we cultivate is the practice of non-suffering. Right? If we're interested in a peaceful, in a unshakable peace, which is one of the ways that Nibbana, Nirvana, the awakening is described, this unshakable peace, this unshakable release of our hearts, then that's what we practice with the ordinary conditions that are coming and going in our lives. We don't need like a special place or time to practice. We can practice being at ease. What does ease look like with these conditions? We bring that essential ingredient to the path, that capacity we have to acknowledge the present moment. It's like this now. And we just keep at it. And even if we're the mind, the habit of the mind is to freak out or to get tight, there's something revealed in that capacity, and this is just as best as we can do it with words, to step back and realize, I'm really freaking out here. I'm really acting out here. It's not that I want to act out or freak out or, you know, get tight, but that's what's happening. It looks and feels like this. And that what we learn over the years of our practice is that space of awareness, that wise and kind space of awareness, actually can't be removed. It's always there, not always recognized, of course. When my mind gets fully identified, caught up in some drama, then wisdom forgets to notice that space doesn't mean it isn't there, but in a sense, it's not being recognized. And so the freedom that comes with that sense of space, oh yeah, this is what's happening, this is what's being felt, it's just this experience, we lose that. We lose that degree of freedom when the mind gets fully absorbed in the content or the drama of our story, whatever the story the mind has about what's happening and who I am and who you are and what's good and bad right now. And one of the things that we, that gets clearer about this path that the Buddha taught, this path of awakening, is uh, there's only one thing ultimately to trust. You know, a lot of times we, you know, depending on our cultural upbringing, we might trust in God or we might trust in nature or we want to imagine that something, somebody has our back and is going to take care of us. And one of the really uh, for me, inspiring and useful and trustworthy aspects of the Buddhist teachings is there's only really one thing to trust, which is the deepening understanding, the deepening wisdom of our heart. And, uh, you know, we, we want to 
imagine that nature is there, but nature is what is already here, you know, the good and the bad. Nature is not just the good. We think of the climate crisis as being bad in that it's against nature. But the ignorance that leads to the climate crisis or that leads to any system or pattern of oppression in our world, that's nature too. Not just the altruistic, the noble qualities that we sometimes see in ourselves, recognize in others, but all the ignorant qualities and the force of hate and the force of greed and the force of distraction, that's also nature. So it isn't so much expecting nature to save us at all. What's going to help ourselves and our communities is to understand nature, to understand the nature that's here and there, and to understand the underlying principles of nature, of causes and conditions of the way it is. Because in not understanding nature the way it is, a lot of friction, a lot of tightness, and that hate and the greed and the delusion, ignorance, it really comes out of the tightness and the reactions to the tightness. So I've been talking about since January when I started talking about this path of awakening that the Buddha lays out for us, that uh, it really always arises from wisdom. Every moment of our practice needs to somehow be connected to whatever wisdom the heart has in that moment. Whatever sense that it matters. So part of wisdom is not believing in any sense of wanting to give up. I had an interesting experience yesterday. I was writing an email. It took a long time to write it out. And uh, and then I thought I lost. I, I probably worked out in a, an hour or so. And then I you know, was doing some manipulations and transferring the content to a different email, but not wanting to lose that that I had been working on. And uh, and I was, my mind got upset when I thought it was gone, you know. And uh, I just noticed very clearly in my mind, like, wanting to give up. It's like, I'm not going back to it. I'm going to have some ice cream. I'm going to distract myself. Uh, it's not fair that that happened. Technology was at fault. Whoever designs these systems... You know, I was just projecting all over the place and then wanting to sort of comfort myself. Now, I'm not saying any of that is bad, but the point I want to make is that strong desire, seemingly wholesome desire to want to give up because it isn't fair. And the thing is that email needed to be written and sent and other work needed to be done. And so giving up wasn't helping anybody, right? It was coming out of this place that the unpleasant feeling that was there was like intolerable, like I can't practice with it. I mentioned that in the guided sit today too. It's, it's a very interesting 
moment in a set or in daily life where we notice the mind, the habits of mind saying something like, I, this is not okay, I can't be with this, I can't practice with this, I can't continue with this. And like I was talking about before, if we have a little bit of space around that, right, if the mind is stable enough, wisdom is present enough, and we can notice that wanting to give up, wanting to turn away, right, then we can see it as just a phenomena, that wanting to give up, the thinking, I can't practice with this, I can't continue with this. And it really creates this capacity for steadfastness, where wisdom then, when it recognizes that, then wisdom gets interested, okay, what will practice look like with this? Am I sure I can't feel this and respond appropriately in some way creatively and learn from this? We stay in the game. And that's really one of the essential aspects of the developing the practice is these difficulties, I mean, this is age-old human wisdom, difficulties are the places where there's a lot of learning, a lot of growth, and a lot of freedom. And I know that sounds like a platitude, but it just seems to turn out to be true. But it doesn't mean it's easy, right? Staying in the fire, staying in the heat of wanting to give up, because I'm so confused, I feel so pushed around, my mind, heart, body feels so dominated by this negative habit of mind, of greed, of hate, of fear, of anxiety, of not being good enough, whatever the pattern might be, and the unpleasantness of that pattern. It just feels like in every corner of the body and mind, like this is unworkable, I got to give up. I got to turn away. I find that I'm sure a lot of you do in terms of important relationships with a parent, with a sibling, with a child, with a partner, with a good friend, with somebody at work, that in moments feels completely unworkable. This is not okay. This person should not be the way they are. I can't continue to work with this person, live with this person, be the son or daughter of this person, you know, have this child living in my house. And it's so potent to see the, the apparent clarity and rightness of that thought, but have some space around it. Oh yeah, the mind, you know, it's trying in a, you know, in a simplistic way to protect itself by taking charge, you know. But, but wisdom understands that the, uh, that reaction isn't coming from the totality of experience. And so we see, we sense some space around that big reactive pattern. And it creates these degrees of freedom, other ways of responding And we can even let, as I think Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, said when he was talking about the hindrances, 
allowing the hindrance to reveal itself. We actually, wisdom actually gets interested in the full blossoming of the hindrance, of the reaction, whatever it might be. And, you know, uh, I think Ajahn Sumedho, another uh, well-known teacher in our early Buddhist tradition, uh, an American Buddhist monk, um, yeah, just talks about almost repeating back, like in your mind, or if you're alone, you could even do it out loud, but that angry mind state, that greedy, lustful mind state, that deluded whatever mind state, and it's complaining or saying whatever it's saying, then to say it out loud. So you're kind of, yeah, be who you are, you know, because we need to, um, in a sense, let these unwholesome patterns of our personality, we have to, in moments, when it's appropriate, let them rip, let them reveal themselves, express themselves, assuming we're not causing ourselves and others harm. So in a way, you know, we talk about this sometimes with a dear friend. We might say, don't give me feedback. I just need to vent a little bit here. And it might seem like, you know, we're being really unskillful with our friend, but there might be some of that space of wisdom that is noticing that we're venting, that we're complaining, we're blaming, we're acting out a little. We trust the friend not to get confused by how inappropriate, let's say, we are. They're kind of holding the space so we get a little bit more familiar that that big time reactive pattern is just something being known and being felt. It's neither me, it's neither ultimately good or bad, it's just stuff happening because of causes and conditions. And the, the so-called bad thing is when wisdom isn't there and the mind imagines that that's me, that that negative pattern is me. Because then, in a sense, there's a sense of a me invested in it, a sense of a me invested in acting it out and getting the false promise of whatever that might be in the story. But when we have that sort of space with a good friend or in a sit within our own heart and mind and body and letting the hindrances reveal themselves, we really deepen this wisdom. This wisdom, you know, we sometimes talk about, you know, this, the sort of stereotypic grandmother who, or ancient one, you know, uh, elder in our family or in our community who's seen it all and seen it all and seen it all so many times. And they have that wisdom so when something is happening in the community or in the family, they can show up with be, without getting freaked out by the enormity or the drama of what's going on right now, because they've seen it, and they've seen it. And what did they see? Well, they saw that things get really bad, and then they change, right? So that one of the things when our mind is acting out, like let's just use the example of a lot of strong desire, even lust, you know, I gotta have it, I need it. But if we've seen that a hundred times, we saw the lust, we saw it at bloom and act out and seem so sure of itself, and then see the lust, the greed, desire fade without having been gratified, 
and then not there at all. And if we've seen that many, many times, then the next time lust blooms in the mind, it's just not that compelling. It doesn't mean that the blossoming of the lust and greed isn't as colorful or um, the arguments aren't as well-formed. It just means there's that space of wisdom that understands, hey, I've seen you before. I know how this goes. You really think you need a new car or you really think you need a new partner or you really think you need a new body or you need a new this or a new, new that in order to be happy. But those waves of greed and desire, they bloomed, they did their dance, they rattled the bones and rattled the foundations of the house and then they faded and went away. Maybe another desire then arose or whatever. But it's really important to see that these dramas, these hindrances, these patterns of greed and hate and delusion, they're part of nature and they've got their particular momentum woven into the dynamic of our heart and mind and body. And when the triggers are right, those patterns will do their dance. And sometimes it won't be pretty in the sense that we might actually be harming ourselves and harming those around us. Not that we're intentionally doing that, but there's not enough clarity or um, space to sort of hold all that energy without some identification and some acting out in ways that aren't helpful, that are hurtful. But that's somehow, that's, that's how it is sometimes that we're not skillful. And then there will be consequences, whatever they are. But wisdom can hold all of that. I mean, that's a real sign. You know, for me, when I'm connecting with the teacher, a real trustworthy sign is like, uh, not that the teacher is perfect, although, you know, I wouldn't mind running into one of those too. I'll let you know. But until then, I'm pretty inspired by teachers who have cultivated a relationship to the unwholesome tendencies woven into their personalities. So when they get triggered and when they act out, that what I can observe is them meeting their unwholesome tendencies with a lot of integrity, a lot of honesty, a sense of humor, a sense of space, a fearless willingness to make amends and to take care of any damage, to own the fruits of their actions and their words. Right, That kind of um, not carrying the burden of needing to be perfect, which of course just leads to the need to cover up our imperfections, which of course is neurotic. It's like, oh... You know, I'm a Buddhist, so I don't, I don't, I'm not allowed to be greedy, or I'm not allowed to be distracted, or I'm not allowed to be irritated or angry. And that's, of course, you know, the setup for all kinds of neurotic bypassing and imagine, you know, imitation of what we think a good Buddhist should look like and act like. Some of you know this passage from the Dhammapada, the 
collection of verses sometime in the early centuries of uh, Buddhism, they, uh, somebody, probably a group of people, went through the, the many different discourses um, from the Buddha and other wise people and just collected some of the pithy teachings and put them in this collection called the Dhammapada, the path of the Dhamma. And this is right at the beginning. <clears throat> it goes like this. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made by the heart. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, an unskillful heart, then suffering follows you as the wheel of the cart, the track, the wheel of the cart, the track of the ox that pulls it. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made by the heart. If you speak or act with a calm, bright heart, bright as in clear, then suffering, I'm sorry, then happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves. He insulted me, hit me, beat me, robbed me. For those who brood on like this, <coughs> hostility isn't stilled. He insulted me, hit me, beat me, robbed me. For those who don't brood on like this, hostility is stilled. Hostilities aren't stilled through hostility, regardless. Hostilities are stilled through non-hostility or compassion. This is an unending truth. And that's, like I mentioned earlier, it's such a provocative, I think that's maybe the right word, it's such a provocative thing, not for us to say to the world or to even another person, but for us to use as a, a kind of teaching to illuminate our experience, to say to ourselves, the roots, the causes for suffering are here, right? As this passage says, phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made by the heart. This world of phenomena, this world of experience, we, um, you know, just through culture, we're trained to think that the world comes at us from the outside. And basically, we disown a sense of responsibility because we've been trained to think that the world is being put upon me and I got to deal with it. And I have a less good shake than somebody else is getting. And that's not fair. But at least I'm not as bad getting a better circumstance than somebody else. And so we, we have this sense of being a victim to the world or a victim even to our fate. Like, oh, what a setup that I got. You know, the world is happening to me this way. I got this personality or I have this financial situation or I live in this place or I'm with these people. And that's a very compelling uh, view because it seems you can, when we look that way, it seems to align with truth or with reality. That there is a me and there is a world and I am the victim of the world that surrounds me, the circumstances that are, in a sense, hitting me, touching me. And so it seems that my role is to somehow 
figure out how to control, manipulate, or make the conditions, the outward circumstances suitable the way I want them to be. But the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, are much more about taking responsibility for how the way the mind is, the view, the understanding, the attitudes, the qualities of mind and heart, how they're co-authoring our experience. And even the dominant um, cause for our subjective experience. Doesn't mean that there aren't stuff happening, showing up in our lives. Clearly, that's the case. But the relevant question is, what is the more, in terms of happiness and suffering, in terms of our experience, what's the more relevant factor? Relevant both in terms of being the cause and being something that can be worked with. What is the more relevant thing to pay attention to? And what the Buddha says, what our wise elders tell us, is that paying attention to how my heart and mind is involved in the present moment, through its understanding, through the qualities of mind that are present, through the relative space, intimate space of awareness or absence of that space, that distractedness or superficiality, that's what matters. And that's, in a way, you know, we may not like the responsibility that how, like, the causes are here. It's a very empowering understanding to take on and to learn to live our life with that understanding that it matters how I'm showing up, the kind of mind that's here. And the attitude, the understanding, the way of paying attention, it's all in play. We know we can go from having certain qualities of mind in one moment to having very different qualities of mind in the next. Paying attention in one way in one moment, paying attention in another way in the next moment. So how that piece of how the mind, how the heart is showing up, how it's relating to the present moment, to the conditions that are being known, that there's a lot we can learn to do. And so that's why we say that what we're doing is a training. We're not just trusting the mind. Later, maybe when we've developed some really wise, wholesome understanding and qualities of mind, then we can learn to trust those wholesome, that wholesome understanding that those wholesome qualities. But initially, we're not just trusting, because if we're just trusting the mind, well, that means we're trusting all the unwholesome tendencies, like to blame, or to hate, or to feel better than, or to feel worse than. Because mostly that's what our conditioned mind, habit-based mind is made up of. Patterns that aren't that wise, aren't that helpful. Sylvia Borstein has this in her passage. I forget if I read this a couple of weeks ago, but I find it a really clear way of talking about this insight. So this is her book, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. And um, she writes there, I need to keep rediscovering 
that the pain of the struggle is greater than the pain of the desire. Right? So when I have greed or when I have hate in the heart activated, to sort of stay there, to be aware of the hate, of the greed, is painful. But what we don't see, like acting out the greed, acting out the hate, it doesn't initially feel very stressful because, in a sense, the mind is riding the momentum of that habit of greed, riding the momentum of the habit of hate, you know, aversion, irritation, fear, anxiety. There are different flavors of hate and different flavors of greed. But it's basically a reaction to the present moment, not wanting things to be the way they, that they are. And so it seems on the surface easier to act out these unwholesome motive forces of greed and hate, as opposed to being aware, we're not repressing the hate or suppressing it even. We're letting it move. We're just not acting it out with our words, with our actions, but we're letting, which means we have to be intimate and feel it, which is unpleasant. But if we start to notice the unpleasantness of being entangled with greed and hate and the ongoingness of that, right? The endless ripples, you know, and then we cause problems and then there's payback time and those ripples can go on a long time when we act out greed and hate. We identify with it and act it out. And so that's what Sylvia is saying. I need to re keep rediscovering that the pain of the struggle is greater, the pain of identifying and struggling to act out my greed, act out my hate, is greater than the pain of the desire of that feeling itself, of just being there, the space, that benevolent, compassionate, wise space that holds, okay, the heart is really angry. The heart is really lustful. You know, when I go to the internet to read, to look for something interesting, because I'm feeling that greed need for entertainment, right? I don't want to feel what it feels like to be bored or whatever. But it seems like easier to go looking for entertainment than it is to just feel what it feels like to not go looking. So we want to do an honest assessment. What is the pain of needing to find some entertainment and then being dependent on it, assuming we find some? What's all that stress and pain like? Versus, it may be very intense, but it's pretty ephemeral to sit down and in an honest way acknowledge, oh, okay, being bored feels like this. What would it be like to just open? Is it dangerous actually to be undefended with this feeling in the heart, this experience in the body and mind, to feel lonely? I mean, this is, for some of you, might be especially poignant one to look at. You know, like you might notice how you're filling up your space because you don't like the feeling of being lonely. But it might be nice in appropriate moments 
to really see what's it like just to be with that loneliness and to let it move and to realize I don't need to be afraid of what it feels like. It's just this feeling being numb. There's a little bit more to Sylvia's passage that I've just finished reading. She writes, If I develop the habit of refraining myself, I'll enjoy the relief of feeling desires pass, the desire to hate, the desire to get. And I'll remember that desires are not the problem. Feeling pushed around by them is. right. It's the misunderstanding of greed and hate that's the problem. Greed and hate are going to be moving for a while. But wisdom, we can cultivate a wisdom that isn't confused by greed and hate. And it's an interesting question. What is greed or hate without delusion, without a misunderstanding? And then she ends this passage by writing, I'll continue to have desires, of course, because I am alive, but there will be more modest in their demands. Right? We'll be less and less pushed around by them. And that's really, that's really what the practice, the tradition um, promises. It's not, that, it's not necessarily promising that we'll be unhuman, you know, this transcend human existence and live in the clouds or something like that. What's inspiring to me is the, the promise or the aspiration to be, in a sense, more fully human, conditioned, a mind that's conditioned by culture, imperfectly of course, a body that's born and ages and gets sick and dies, in a society, in a culture, you know, we're, we're like all of the animals, you know, we have these sort of beautiful qualities, but we also have a lot of um, acting out of issues around survival and using the power we have, willing to harm others, right? A lot of messiness, a lot of unskillfulness. This is the world. So I'm really interested in showing up in the world where I'm actually living and discovering, realizing some freedom, some nimble, creative freedom to express this life in a way that doesn't perpetuate more suffering in my heart and around me. I really want, I aspire to not just avoid causing harm, but maybe be part of some healing in my heart, the deep wounds in my own heart, and the deep wounds in, in our communities. Because that feels really good, right? There's a certain, uh, you know, blessing, is the word that's coming to my mind, whenever we're around any real healing, whether it's just our own deepening of understanding that allows us to let go of some wound or some load that we've been carrying along with us, or we're part of some community where there's some healing, some making right of some past harm, moving in the direction of justice, for example. It feels good to be part of healing. This is really the blessing of, or the fruit of cultivating the path, the path is that we get to be part of this 
both the spiritual healing, but even the more nitty-gritty healing in our families and within our own heart and mind. So I'll leave it there. It's 11.45. It's been really sweet being with everyone. I feel like, I'm hoping it's true for you, but that somehow in a weird way we can be in community in this form online. So please take care of yourselves, take care of everyone around you, and hope to see you down the road. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.